We are honored to have Ben Zeller, Associate Professor of Religion, here today to talk about at least assistant. Assistant, I've okay. already promoted. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're here to talk about his uh, two. Of, he has two of his books with him. Three. Three of them. One hiding order. So uh, we'll just turn it over to Ben. Okay. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You know, I every uh, book I publish, uh, I thank librarians. So. I just turned here to acknowledgments page XBI librarians at the University of Rochester, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Duke University, Temple University, Brevard College, and Lake Forest College all assisted me in researching this book as a special collection of librarians and archivists at the Graduate School uh, Graduate Theological Union and University of California, Santa Barbara. It keeps going. Um, but uh, David Levinson could say shout out as well. He helped me with the illustrations. So thank you, David, and thank you all for having me. And I won't read the same sentences in here, but I do thank librarians in all of my books. Uh, I couldn't do what I do if it weren't for for all of you, whether you're in interlibrary loan services or reference librarians helping me with particular questions or the archivists who let me muck around and put things out of order. So it's a pleasure to talk in the library. Um, all right, so I was trying to think of a, t a title for this talk, uh, and I thought um, my academic hat trick uh, why you shouldn't work on three books at once. Uh, <laughs> you know that a hat trick is, um, if you're a hockey or soccer fan, it's three goals in a, in a game. So it's, um, I never set out to have three books come out in the same 12-month period. It was a happy accident, but it was uh, it was a very intense past few years. Uh, so it, it's rather it's cathartic to have it done in many ways. Uh, and it's a pleasure to talk about uh, the three of them. And they all really came from different places. Uh, so I'll try to talk about, about all of them. Uh, thank you much, so much for coming on this uh, snowy day. Um, if there's a theme that, that pulls them all together, it's that uh, a lot of it has to do with serendipity, uh, with sort of good luck, um, with hard work, of course, and being you know, in the right place at the right time and having the right sort of questions and opportunities come up is what led to, to all three of these books. Uh, the order I thought I'd start in is um, not quite the order they came out in, but uh, the order which makes the most sense to me. I'm going to start with the, with the food book, as I call it, and then talk about the New Religions book, as I call it, and end with the, uh, with the Heaven's Gate book, which is the monograph. So two of these are anthologies or collections, and one is a monograph. So let's start with the food book. Um, and it's the book that I've been working on, on the longest continuously, uh, in terms of you know a, when it was born as a book project, when it came out as a book project. Uh, and that's because it started uh, almost a decade ago. Uh, my very first job. Uh, which was um, uh, at Brevard College in North Carolina. Uh, the origin of the book was I was asked to teach a uh, comparative, a course on comparative religions. And those of us in religious studies always get a little nervous around that title, comparative religions, because you usually end up comparing all the religions to, to one of them. So if you take a concept like soul or heaven, everything's going to be compared against Christianity, basically. And so if you use soul as your, as your comparative approach, you can find the idea of soul in Hinduism or Judaism or uh, African religions. But it, it, it's a Christian concept. It'd be as, as, as if you were to take karma as your concept. Well, you can find the idea of karma in Christianity or Judaism, but basically everything's going to be compared against Hinduism or Buddhism. Uh, so I was asked to teach comparative religions, and I thought, okay, well, can, what's comparative? Uh, well, we're all born, we all eat, and we all die. Uh, and uh, I decided to focus on eating because death is depressing. Although I don't do teach on death and dying. It's a big thing. Death dying in the world of religions is real popular now. But I like eating. So I thought I'd focus my, uh, my course, on my comparative religion course, on, on eating. And so I spent uh, a summer basically in, uh, in the library, uh, several libraries. I was living in New Jersey. My wife Emily was uh, doing her graduate work at Princeton. 
so I had access to their library and Princeton Seminary. I was working at Temple, so I was in a lot of libraries and trying to find every single book which had been published on religion and food, which wasn't actually that many. Uh, so actually, I could, in a, in a summer, read almost everything which had been published on the topic, uh, at least book-wise, and I had a bunch of journal articles. And I came to the conclusion that nothing really worked in the classroom. There were a lot of really good, insightful, very deep, penetrative, serious studies of particular new, or particular religions. Uh, you know, so there's studies of Hindu, uh, Hindu widows and food practices with Hindu widows. Well, it was great, but if you didn't know Hinduism, the book didn't make a lot of sense, and I, and I wasn't really sure it would work well in the classroom. Uh, there's really some good book on uh, technical stuff about the nature of transubstantiation and the nature of Eucharist in, in Catholic theology. But if you have no background in Catholicism, it's, it's, a lot of it doesn't make a lot of sense, and it doesn't translate well to comparative work. So I decided I would make my own book, and that's where this one came from. Uh, I talked to some friends. Uh, I had three co-editors for this book, and uh, the way I chose them is I, I knew one other person who taught a course in religion and food, so I called her, my friend Nora, or I could say emailed her, and I said, Nora, how do you feel putting a book together uh, that we could use in our class? She said, I'd love to. I, there's never the right book to use in my class. I said, I know. That's what I'm trying to do. So uh, Nora and I decided we would do this, and uh, I talked to another friend of mine, uh, Marie, uh, who I've worked with at the temple, uh, who doesn't teach in religion and food, but she had taught on death and dying, actually, so she had experience in sort of these broad comparative topics. Uh, and she also had done research on, on a new religion, uh, the uh, Daddy Grace movement, where, where food was important. So she had done research on, on food and religion. And finally, I talked to a fourth friend of mine, Reed Nilsson, uh, who had very successfully published a lot of books, anthologies. Uh, and it's not always easy to get a press to publish an anthology. Uh, and it's not sure if they're going to sell. So he had had a lot of publishing success. So the four of us put together a proposal. And uh, the first thing we did is we went to the American Academy of Religion, which is our guild for all of us who study religion. We get together once a year at the annual meeting. And uh, we put together a proposal to have a new program unit for religion and food where we'd gather papers. And it was approved. Uh, so I served as chair of that for its first and only five years. It was a seminar. So we met for five years. We um, had a call for papers. We tried to, to solicit new research on religion and food. And from the new research, we put together uh, our book. Uh, you know, academic books are supposed to be peer reviewed. And this has, in my mind, some of the best peer review you can get. Not only do their proposals have to pass muster with the four of us on the steering committee, uh, that is the editors of the book. Uh, they also uh, they agreed to pre-distribute copies of their papers to anyone coming to the seminar that year, so you'd have dozens of people, and then to meet once a year for five years and have people publicly uh, critique their work uh, and give them feedback. So five years of work basically on the chapters which went into this. Uh, it was pretty extensive peer review, and that's before you even had the press. The press has its own peer review agents. So it was very extensively reviewed. Uh, it's very broad. Religion, food, and eating in North America is, is the title. Uh, we do have a couple of Canadian and Caribbean perspectives as well, primarily in the United States. Uh, and their chapters are on, on, diverse. I mean, there's a chapter on um, Christmas cookies and the place they serve in um, uh, mixed religious homes, Jewish Christian homes, and negotiating the holidays and, and religious practice. Uh, there's one on uh, Muslims in Chicago creating an eco-halal. Halal is the Islamic food codes and an attempt to create sort of an ecologically sustainable version of halal. Uh, there's, uh, there's truly historical ones looking at uh, new, uh, uh, religions from the 19th century or earlier, Christian vegetarianisms from the you know, 19th, 18th century. Uh, I have a chapter in here on uh, people who, uh, who practice what I call quasi-religious approaches to food, uh, locavores, people who, who intentionally eat only local food, or vegans or vegetarians choose only to eat uh, uh, non-animal-based meals. 
uh, how they uh, have uh, how they talk about their their practices and how it mimics religion. So it's a lot of very different chapters, but the whole intent was to have material we can use in courses. And to that end, what makes me really happy is that I've taught this book uh, here at Lake Forest College uh, three years now. The first two years, or the first year, it was um, it was copy edited files. The second year it was as proofs, and the third year it's as as a book. Uh, so it's been a pleasure to see it. And actually, each stage, students have helped me. You know, and we've caught either mistakes or typos, or they've asked questions. I've emailed the authors and say, "Hey, my students are wondering about this. Can you can you do this?" So it's it really grew out of the classroom. I'm really proud of it as, as a classroom book. It grew out of the classroom. I use it in the classroom, but it's also really good scholarship. It's all cutting edge scholarship. Uh, so it's um, and I think what what speaks to it to its its value and to to its credit is we had multiple presses who basically chased us down. Uh, we didn't even submit a proposal before we had Columbia University Press saying we want this book. No, of course we had to submit a submit proposal, but it was the nicest proposal response I ever got. It was really back within a couple months, and basically the peer reviewer said we love it. Mm. And uh, it took a while to, uh, to to go to press because we were very slow. We were very methodical in terms of reviewing, editing. Uh, it really has been almost a decade. The five-year run of that seminar ended two years ago, and it took a year to plan. So it's basically eight years from start to finish, plus me thinking about it for a year before that. So it's about a nine-year process of writing this book. But uh, I teach it in class, and it is uh, something which is tied very closely to, to my identity as a, as a scholar-teacher. Uh, so that's really what, the, what this book represents for me. Um, I thought I'd maybe take questions at the end, after I've talked about all the books. Uh, but uh, so that's the religion, food, and eating in, in North America book came out uh, last year from Columbia University Press, uh, and it's, it was a joy to work with uh, my colleagues on here. Uh, you know, I, I know all the, the, the authors. We met every year at the AAR meeting. Uh, the editors were basically friends of mine already. I mean, I didn't go into this uh, not knowing who they were. So it was it was a very collegial, uh, great group of people to work with, both, both the editors and the contributors, and it was a it was a pleasure. Uh, the only unpleasant part was the indexing, to be honest. And the indexing is, um, is never fun. But one thing I learned from doing this is I would always pay an indexer. I'm never going to do it again. Uh, the other uh, uh, anthology uh, is, well, it's actually a reference book, is this uh, Bloomsbury Companion to New Religious Movements. Uh, you know, if the first book was born out of my needs and what I wanted and, and, and my, my, my desires for, for what would work really well in the classroom, this is almost the antithesis of this. This is a library book. It's a reference book. It's meant to sit in, in, in closed stacks in, in the reference collection. Uh, I, the publisher said, well, maybe we'll do a soft cover, which could be used in courses. Uh, it's basically, I mean, you would never read it front to back. It, it's a reference book. Uh, and it's one that actually wasn't born from, uh, from me thinking, hey, I should produce it, but from colleagues coming to me. Uh, and I'll tell you where it came from and why I signed on to the project. Um, but the, um, it's part of a series from Bloomsbury. Uh, which is uh, has a, a UK press, which has sort of absorbed a bunch of other presses as well. Continuum, I think, was uh, was once uh, separate. And they uh, they have a series of uh, companions, uh, and it's everything from companion to, to Heidegger to companion to film studies uh, to companion to, to new religious movements. Uh, their editor actually approached a colleague of mine in uh, University of Birmingham in the UK, George Gracides, and asked George if he wanted to. to edit a new book for them in the series, a companion to the study of the religious movements. Uh, and George said he'd be interested. Uh, they said, we'd like you to have a co-editor. It's too big of a project for one person. We'd like a North American. Uh, so George emailed me. Uh, actually, I think he, he almost physically bumped into me at a conference first and said, hey, I have an idea for you. I'll, I'll email it to you later on. Uh, and then I got an email from George saying, this is 
this is uh, what the press has asked me to do, is, is uh, put together uh, 10 to, to 20 uh, cutting-edge chapters on the, the, the state of the subfield, the study of new religious movements. Topics such as charisma or leadership, conversion, brainwashing, themes like gender, uh, race, ethnicity, uh, new emergent topics, which they hadn't even thought of. I said, oh, things like food, for example. Said, yeah, exactly. um, regions, so Japanese new religions, African new religions, things like that. So it could be a reference book. And the idea is that if a, uh, uh, that scholars of new religions would like it because it shows each chapter has all the, the up-to-date research with a full bibliography. Uh, and also people, uh, scholars who are coming to the field for some reason, you know, their area is medieval religion, but they want to in some way look at how their medieval religion tracks today, they can have a, a reference book they can go to to look at, you know, neo-medievalisms in, in your religions today. So uh, that was the, the intent. Uh, it wasn't my project. So I was really hesitant to sign on. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't my baby, and it's a lot of work to do a book. What convinced me uh, was, was my conversations with George, who I liked very much, and, and, and the idea of trying to get the top couple dozen people in our field together to write a book together. Uh, I didn't know when we first started doing this project, the majority of the contributors to this book. I had heard of most of them. Many of them are, are, are leading figures in our field of the study of new religions. Uh, I had never met most of them. Uh, many of them are UK-based or Europe-based. I had met even some of the more senior American uh, scholars. I didn't know them that well. Many of them are 20, 30 years my senior. Uh, and we also decided we would, we would make a space for, for young scholars, too. That we would have not just sort of uh, major scholars writing about conversion and brainwashing. We would ask young scholars, what are the cutting edge issues? And can you contribute chapters on that as well? So what sold me to the project was the ability to work with, with my colleagues, to get younger new scholars together and the most senior established scholars together, and people who I knew by reputation but had not worked with. And to that end, it was, it was a success. We did have some people say no, of course. Uh, but uh, one of the people who, who said no, we, we, we got her back, we actually dedicated the book to her. Uh, she, she basically founded the study of new religions in, in the UK. Uh, so we dedicated the book to her, uh, Eileen Barker. Uh, so she said no, she wouldn't write first. We said, okay, well, we're still going to have your name on it, though. Uh, this was a book which wouldn't exist if it weren't for the internet. That's what's so interesting. Uh, George and I met during the, the time it took to write this book was about a three or four year process. I actually, I sent the emails to contributors asking them if, they, if they'd be willing to sign on. Uh, I actually did it sitting in um, the, the Lake Forest Inn, uh, Deer Path Inn, on my interview here when I was interviewing for the job. I had had my sample class during the day, and I went back and I said, okay, the interview's done, now I have to send emails to get people to sign on to, to contribute to this book. So I remember it was born during my, basically my interview here. Uh, and by the time I'd arrived here, it was under contract. Uh, but it was a couple-year process, a two- or three-year process from beginning to end, and it was almost all done electronically. Uh, George and I met uh, once a year at the American Academy of Religion to talk about how the project was going. Uh, I met my editor at Bloomsbury only there, uh, so I met her maybe twice uh, before the book came out. Half the contributors I'd, uh, I didn't meet and have not met uh, because they live uh, in Europe or Asia, uh, but we did it all electronically. And it worked, which is what's really amazing to me. We used Dropbox, we were using Acrobat, we were using uh, Google, whatever Google shared file system is, Google Docs, thank you. We were using, we used all sorts of technological tools and it worked. And that's what was so, so amazing. It, it's a book, and George and I were talking about this, if we had tried to do this 30 years ago, 
this book would have taken decades to write, mm -hmm. sending drafts back and mm -hmm. forth, probably would have been lost a few times in the, you know, and who knows how much it would have cost sending back and forth with, with you know, Royal Mail. Uh, and it was born very much uh, out of this sort of the idea of collaboration across the Atlantic, and that was the idea from the beginning, is they wanted a North American and a Brit working together on, on the study of new religious movements. And we pulled in folks from Germany, uh, we had Canadians, uh, Japanese, uh, we had Nigerian scholar, we had a lot of, uh, of folks um, uh, engaged, uh, Swiss, Dutch, uh, French, and we, uh, a Turkish, uh, we had a lot, of, a lot of folks who were involved. So and actually, a lot of the work I did for this, I was actually on my Fulbright, I was in Finland. Uh, so actually, it was um, I, I was in three different locales as I was writing it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, I'm very proud. It's a really good reference book. Again, I wouldn't tell someone to read it beginning to end, but if you want to know what do scholars think about charisma in the study of new religious movements, then I would suspect and I would suggest that you should just flip open to uh, chapter 13, Charisma and Leadership by David G. Brownlee, who's one of the leaders in the field of study of new religious movements, has been doing research since the 70s on the topic of charisma and leadership. So, and if you're interested in, in a new topic like um, uh, invented religions, it's a term invented by an Australian researcher, Carol Cusack, who looks at religions uh, which uh, people are part of that they know they're fictional, like Jediism, which is, which is a religion. Um, if you want to read about invented religions, there's her book and a couple articles she wrote, and there's this chapter. And this is the most recent thing she's written on it, so it represents sort of her continuing evolution of the thought on that. So I'm proud. It's got it's got a lot of stuff in it. I think it's. Uh, from talking to the, the press, they're pleased with the sales. It sold well to research libraries uh, and at undergraduate institutions, and it's uh, hopefully going to get some good use. And you've also contributed a chapter. I did. Yeah, yeah I contributed. It was funny. George and I, we said we weren't going to contribute chapters, but people drop out of projects. So basically, uh, each of us ended up contributing chapters when people yeah. said, committed and fell through or withdrew or... Um, we, well, there was one where we had to reject. We didn't write the replacement. But these things fall through uh, in, in these sort of projects. Yeah, but I contributed. Uh, uh, George and I co-wrote a chapter, uh, Opposition to New Religions. Uh, and then I contributed a chapter on Science in New Religions. Yeah. And again, I'll take questions at the end. Uh, and I take most of the time for, for this last book. Uh, This last book is, I'm proud of all my books, but what makes this book most special is where it came from. It's, um, the title is Heaven's Gate, America's UFO Religions. Thank you. Although I could just drink coffee, too. Uh, Heaven's Gate, America's uh, UFO Religion, uh, NYU Press, New York University Press, came out last year as well. Uh, so the first book, uh, Religion, Food, Eating in North America, was born in the classroom in terms of how I could find resources to teach. The second book was born out of my professional uh, research collaboration with, with George Cassidy's and others. This book was actually, it was born out of the classroom, but it was born out of the classroom when I was a student. Uh, the Heaven's Gate Mass Suicides occurred in 1997 when I was an undergraduate. And I brought to show you its twin, an interpretation of Heaven's Gate, Benjamin Ethan Zeller, Senior Honors Thesis, Department of Religion and Classics, University of Rochester, April 1999, 20th century. Uh, I've been thinking about Heaven's Gate since it happened in 1997. If you don't know anything about Heaven's Gate, there were a UFO group had a mass suicide in uh, in 97 in San Diego. They had formed about 20 years before that, uh, mid to late 70s. Uh, they were never that big, a couple hundred people at their peak. They uh, When they ended, there were about 40 people. 
but they uh, sought salvation in the heavens, and uh, they were basically a, a Christian group which had attached sort of some New Age interpretations, interest in ufology, but basically they reread the Christian Bible such that God was a space alien, and whenever there were miracles, it was technology from outer space, and whenever there were angels, there were space aliens, and uh, they basically wanted to go, go to the heavens, go to outer space, and join, join uh, God and God's crew on a spaceship. Uh, so they've always fascinated me because, on the one hand, uh, and I read about this in, in, in the introduction. On the one hand, wanting to, to get to heaven and, and be saved is totally normal in religions. Every religion talks about some idea of salvation. It's phrased differently, nirvana, moksha, heaven, reincarnation, whatever it is. But every idea has some sort of ideal of salvation or transcendence. And looking to the heavens for that is, is also pretty mundane in most religions. Most religions have the idea of some sort of heavenly salvation. Uh, so in some ways, Heaven's Gate is, is totally normal. I mean, it's, it's about a bunch of people who wanted to be saved, and they were looking to heaven. On the other hand, it's just suddenly not normal. Uh, they believe that God was a space alien, and they committed suicide. These are not normal things. So what's always interesting about the group is how come they are abnormal and normal at the same time. Then if you look at the people who are members, uh, they, they ranged in age from their young, uh, young 20s to their uh, mid-60s. Most of them were very highly educated, smart, intelligent people. Uh, nearly every one of them left either a written statement about what they were doing or a video statement about why they were committing suicides. And they come across as rational, clear, level-headed people. It's haunting, actually, uh, to, to hear them look at the camera. Look at the camera and say, I know you're going to think that I'm brainwashed. I know you're going to think that I'm diluted. I, 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 diluted. I want you to think that, I want you to know that I'm rational, that I'm saying that I've chosen to do this. They say, I know you're going to know, you're going to think I'm part of a cult. I want you to know it isn't a call. It's, so that's what's always grabbed me, is they, they knew they were going to be dismissed. Uh, Ted Turner, after the, um, the Heaven's Gate suicides, Ted Turner went on record as saying it's, it's a good way to get, get rid of a few nuts. So it's always struck me that Heaven's Gate needed to be studied, because they were nuts. That's the thing. But if they, if they went on video and they were raving lunatics, screaming and babbling incoherently, it's no story. It's a bunch of lunatics. When they go on video and, and, and write, and they develop hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of, of theology, trying to make sense and explain what they believe and what they did, and it also looks crazy to everyone else, that's interesting. So that's what always drove me from when I was a, a college sophomore or junior, I have to do the math, uh, to a, a college senior, and I, I wrote this for, as I said, for, for my thesis. Uh, I never really let, let it go. I kept writing articles on it all through graduate uh, school uh, and my, my early career, uh, my first job. Uh, and I, I dedicate this book to, to my wife, Emily, who most of you know. Uh, and one reason I dedicate it to her is not just what I not have gotten anything done without her help, but she's the one who said to me, you know, Ben, you should probably finish writing that book sometime. Uh, I've been thinking about it for, for a long time. Uh, now, I mentioned serendipity. Here's the serendipity. I had actually written is half of it or so, a little less than that, a third of it, in draft form over several years uh, it, during my first job at Brevard, North Carolina. Uh, and then, as many of you know, I had a Fulbright leaf uh, between my jobs. So after I left North Carolina, before I came here, I came mid-year. So my, uh, uh, my, my Fulbright was in Finland. Uh, so I was a visiting uh, lecturer and researcher at Obo Academy in uh, Turku, or Obo, Finland. And uh, I had originally planned on doing some research on new religions in Finland, and the sort of research I wanted to do, it became clear to me I couldn't get done in the six months I was there. There were language issues, uh, there was some foundational research I didn't get done, and it was clear that my original project wasn't going to work. 
No, my, my hosts were very gracious. This didn't bother them at all. They, they just wanted me there to sort of uh, to be an intellectual conversation partner. I, I did some lecturing, taught some classes. So they, they were happy uh, with whatever I was doing. And I said, well, if I'm sitting here in Finland in the fall and the winter, uh, in the dark, in the cold, in the snow, and I can't go do the research I want to do, maybe I should finish that book. Uh, and uh, the uh, Oval Academy University uh, had a, a great library, and so I was able to pull in all the sources I needed, a lot of the stuff I had digitally as well. And I pretty much finished the book uh, while I was there. I went back to the drafted chapters and rewrote them. Uh, I wrote all but the last chapter, or rewrote and wrote all but the last chapter in, during the six months in Finland. Uh, and then once I arrived here, I was able to finish that last chapter of my first year here. Uh, I had to go out and do some interviews of some ex-members. I got uh, funding through the dean's office to do that, so I, I make sure to thank the, the dean's office in, in here as well. Uh, but uh, that was the process. Uh, what did I find? Well, I found that uh, the members of Heaven's Gate were entirely normal. That's just what's so interesting about them. It was rational. It made sense to them. Within the closed world of Heaven's Gate, it made sense. If you accept their assumptions, and their assumptions are things like aliens visit the planet. All the biblical text and every religious text is a record of that. The ancient people didn't understand alien technology, so they used terms like gods and miracles and things like that. But actually they just misunderstood that it was alien technology. If you accept all those assumptions, then their whole system makes sense. The suicides were because they saw themselves not as bodies, but as uh, basically downloadable information which had been placed into these brains and could be uploaded as well. So they had been downloaded into these bodies, into these brains, and the time had come to leave, so they just had to upload the data out of these bodies, into the, out of these brains, into the bodies waiting for them on those spaceships. So they, they, used the, uh, they used that language, upload, download, computer chips. They used the language of vehicles. They said it's like getting out of a car and going into a new car. Within their, their world, it made sense. I was also able to try to track down what actually sort of instigated the suicide. I mean, it's one thing to have that theology, it's another thing to actually do it. Uh, and uh, they had expected, they had hoped, that the government was going to kill them. Uh, after the Branch Davidians of Waco and the um, Oklahoma City bombings and the Montana Freeman, uh, Jim Jones, you know, all the, all the sort of these, these, uh, these, these examples of cultic violence, they thought, okay, we don't have to worry about how we're going to get our, our minds uploaded to the next level, to outer space, because the government's going to do it for us. Turns out the government had no interest in them. They were, uh, uh, basically, they lived as monks. Uh, they had jobs in the tech industry. They minded their own business and let people alone. As far as anyone knows, the government had, wasn't even aware they were there. So the government was not going to come in and kill them. So their plan B was, we have to take care of it ourselves. Uh, so their original plan was, uh, they were going to have a Waco-style siege. They, they wanted it. They wanted the government to kill them, so they could get uploaded to the next level. But it didn't. It didn't turn out, and in the book I, I try to trace how and why that happened as it did. I also trace what it was they believed, what their worldview was like, what their practices were. They had a rich prayer life. I mean, they're like any other religion. They, they, they did things. They prayed, they meditated, they went on pilgrimages, uh, they built special homes, they had special language they used, uh, and uh, that's what the book's about. Uh, it's gotten some, uh, some good reception. I've been interviewed a couple of times about it. Uh, I'm doing an interview for NPR uh, next March, uh, the anniversary of the suicides, uh, about, about the book. I've also been interviewed from uh, a paranormal webcast, a group of people interested in the paranormal, so all sorts of different groups have been interested in this. But uh, to me, what, what I like uh, most about this book is that it's, it's something which really shaped me as a scholar. You know, I don't know if I would have gone into the study of 
religion at all, or, or new religions particularly, if it hadn't been that formative experience of, I was taking a class on messianism when the Heaven's Gate suicides occurred. I, I remember sitting in a classroom, and the, the, the guy who taught it, the professor who taught it, he was this lovely old Jesuit uh, who knew nothing about new religions or, or UFOs or things. I mean, his specialty was biblical literature. He was teaching us the book of Daniel and stuff like that, and, and you know, in the Babylonian and, and Egyptian parallels to it. Uh, and I remember I said to him in this class on, on messiness, and I said, hey, can I do my final project on Heaven's Gate? And you know, I, what was he thinking? He should, he should have said, no, of course not. Just, what do I know about that? He said, oh, yeah, it's, that's a great topic. Aren't they that new group that's had that suicide? Sure. I didn't know anything about it. Go ahead. Uh, and that's what sort of led me to it. So uh, Father Brennan, who's, who's since passed away, um, uh, give him credit for that, for giving me the, the freedom to do that way back when I was in college. So with that, I think I'll take, I'll take questions, because that, that's a lot of me talking, and it's three books. I'm sure you have questions about contents, process, anything like that. So in what order were they published? What order were they published in? Okay, the, um, I have to put them in the right order. Uh, the Bloomsbury Companion came out first. Uh, then the food book, and that was within a couple of months of each other. Mm -hmm. And then and that was uh, last, uh, that was winter to spring of 2014. And then just this October, November 2014 is when the Heaven's Gate book came out. But it was all within a 12-month period, uh, which was which was crazy. Uh, and I'll, you know, I'll tell you what the lessons I learned from this one: never self-index. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I'm going to thank uh, Dean Michael Orr, who paid for the not personally, but uh, Lake Forest College paid for the indexing for this one. I was never going to do that again. And, and the index is, is it's a very fine index, by the way, because I paid a professional to do it, or the, the, the college paid a professional to do it. We had a librarian who worked here who's. Um, Husband was a professional indexer, but yeah, she's no longer here. So. It, it, it's I mean, it's a science indexing. It is, uh, it is. and and I, I will. It's, I mean, it's expensive, of course. It's the thing. That's why first-time authors, junior faculty, tend to do it themselves. But uh, one of the, the reasons for having institutions, of course, is, is to support uh, research and um, and that it's done professionally. So just like you wouldn't ask just anyone to to work in the archives and special collections or the circulation desk, you wouldn't ask just anyone. To write a book or index it, so they're all specialized. Uh, I have a question. I don't remember the details of the Heaven's Gate mass suicide, but why did they make it a mass suicide? If they're going to upload, if their mm -hmm. minds or their information is going to, they think it's going to upload into yeah. whatever a ship or a computer or God, whatever. Why did they have to do it as a mass suicide? Why couldn't they just wait until yeah. time till they died? Well, so they actually that was sort of their thought earlier. Uh, so when they first started, actually, they thought they were physically going to get on the spaceships. So before it was even the download idea, it was the idea, or upload idea, it was the idea they're going to get on the spaceships. And the spaceships were going to meet them mid-atmosphere, and they were going to get sort of lifted up with teleportation beams. And it was basically the rapture. You know the idea of the Christian rapture? Which is the idea that Jesus is going to meet people midway in the air and sort of lift them up and they'll be saved? Uh, that's basically what they had. Then their co-founder died, and her body didn't go anywhere. So they had to rethink it. They said, okay, our bodies aren't going to go anywhere, but her mind has been uploaded. Then they started getting older. So this was in the mid-80s. So then fast forward 10 years. They're all 10 years older. Uh, their, their founder was in his mid-60s. He thought he might have cancer. He didn't actually, but he was thinking there were health problems. There was a member in a wheelchair. So they thought this is how it's going to happen. We're all going to individually go and be uploaded. The problem with that is they had this idea of the sort of chain of, of mind was linking them. So all the members were dependent on Applewhite or Joe, their, their leader 
when he was dependent on T, their deceased leader, the co-founder, and she was dependent on her superiors up in, in the heavens. And they were worried that if Doe or Appleite were to die, they were all of a sudden going to lose their connection. So it was, they, they didn't want that to happen. And Appleite himself, we think, he never was really explicit. He, he, but it seems like he didn't want to just see his flock wither one by one. Uh, if the body is worthless anyways, he might as well be done with it. It's like uh, ripping a Band-Aid off. You know, why do it slowly? Just take care of it. It's the metaphor I think they would be happy with. If they wanted the government to kill him, why didn't they do something that would attract the government's attention, like accumulating weapons? Like the Branch Davidian. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, this is really, it, 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 it's, it's funny. I mean, there's a lot of humor, and I mean, it's dark humor because they killed themselves. But it's, the funny thing is, they actually, they bought some weapons. They didn't know how to use them, and they didn't want them because they were basically pacifists. So they bought a whole bunch of weapons, and they thought, okay, the government will come kill us now. And the government didn't come kill them, so they put their weapons in a storage locker and never went there again. Um, <laughs> It was, um, they, they fundamentally were, were, were pacifist people. I mean, they, they didn't want to hurt anyone. So that's, that's why it wouldn't work. They, they picked up a, a guide to suicide, actually. There was a book written um, for uh, terminally ill patients about how to commit suicide. Uh, so they picked up that book, uh, and one of the pieces of advice that the, that author gives terminally ill people is don't use firearms. You're more likely to to maim yourself or end up in, in a vegetative state than you were to kill yourself. So they read that, and an ex-member who was there when they were having this discussion, who left, so we know because the ex-member was there, he said, they talked about the book, or we talked about the book, uh, and the people decided, yeah, okay, let's, let's not use weapons. We don't like them anyways. Uh, so the advice that that author gives is exactly what the members of Heaven's Gate actually used, which is to combine barbiturates, alcohol, and asphyxiation with a uh, bag tied around your neck. So they went with, uh, with the advice that this author gives for, um, it was intended for uh, terminally ill patients, uh, but they, you know, what works for terminally ill people works for anyone. So barbiturates, alcohol, and asphyxiation. Good to know. It's on the internet. It's on the internet, yeah. Do you want to go first? Is there any followers of the Heaven's Gate today? There's still some ex-members, and that's some of the folks I was interviewing. Uh, yeah, so all the active members uh, committed suicide. Uh, then there were members who had been had left the group for one reason or another, and depending on how you're counting, four or five of them committed suicide as well in the next three or four years after after the main group. Uh, then there's a whole bunch of ex-members who basically probably still believe, uh, and by a whole bunch, I, I should say you know a dozen or so, who still believe but have decided this is not the path for them. Uh, members of Heaven's Gate also believed in reincarnation, so they they'll just they'll take care of it two or three thousand years from now when the next opportunity comes up. So there is an option in their, in their worldview for that to work. So there's a bunch of ex-members like that, and I've spoken with, with a bunch of them. And then there's many, many ex-members who just left and said, no, this was wrong, or I want no part of it. Uh, but in terms of active membership, there's no one left. Uh, there are some ex-members who still run the website, and I know them pretty well, I've interviewed them and spent time with them. They see it as a memorial. Uh, and if someone emails them and says, hey, I want to join, they say there's no group. We're not members anymore. There's there's nothing to it. But um, there are the, the website's still up, and it is being run really as a memorial to the uh, uh, to the the co-religionists of the, the ex-members uh, who run the website because these were their friends. When I asked them why do you run the website, why do you deal with these emails, uh, they said, well, these were our friends. We spent 20 years of our lives with them. We want to remember them and honor them. It's very human. It's a human element that makes it so interesting to me. It was easy to dismiss these people because they have bizarre beliefs. 
which they do. I mean, they are bizarre. There's no other way to say it. But um, but they're bizarre from my perspective. I suppose they would say that my beliefs are bizarre from their perspective. Uh, but they're human people. And the great irony is they want to stop being human. The irony is they wanted to evolve beyond humanity. They want to become space aliens. Uh, and, and I know this because I, I think I've sort of offended a few ex-members and I say, you know, I really try to see the humanity. And, and they say, no, we, we don't want to be human. Mm -hmm. uh, but to me, that, that's part of the story, is I see their humanness, which they rejected. It's layers and layers of irony. Two questions, not related. One boring, one more interesting. <laughs> um, about the Bloomsbury um, yeah. uh, companion, do you foresee doing uh, new editions since it's a reference book? Yeah. Uh, and I'll just ask the other question and you can answer both. Um, the Heaven's Gate, um, I lived in um, Northern California at that time uh, in an area, it was actually 13 hours by car, I mean, um, the Mount Shasta area, and there were people yeah. there who also believed that there were um, aliens in spaceships um, because there's these cloud formations, they're called lenticular clouds, yeah. that do look somewhat like spaceships, and they believed that they were. And I wonder if there was any connection between these groups. Are, yeah, uh, yes, and yes. So I'll start with the with Bloomsbury <laughs> question first. Um, the last time I talked with my editor uh, at Bloomsbury, uh, the, the next plan is to come out with soft cover, assuming that. Uh, uh, the market supports it, to, to test the waters to see if people teaching courses on new religious movements would want to adopt it. I mean, the only way to get books published now is course adoption, basically, or to go the route of super expensive and only 200 libraries in the world are going to buy it. Uh, so the, the next plan for this book is to put it in soft cover, uh, potentially, if the market supports it, and see if, uh, if it can be used for course adoption. And if that's working, then long term we'd look at that uh, in another edition. Uh, but uh, uh, where it stands now is, is they're just waiting to see. Uh, the uh, question of uh, Mount Shasta and sort of the, the, the broader sort of ufological subculture, uh, that's part of the story too for, for Heaven's Gates, is although they look sort of wacky, they really weren't. There was a lot of, it is a lot of intent interest in space aliens and UFOs and interpretations of the Bible throughout the sort of the broader New Age subculture. Uh, and that includes ideas about ancient astronauts, the idea, the, the idea that space aliens have visited the planet in the past and that, uh, that they would have been taken as gods is, uh, well, it strikes some as far-fetched. Within a particular subculture, it's seemed quite normal. Uh, you know, people who are interested in, in UFOs, uh, they would say, well, that's just following uh, science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke's third law, which is that any sufficiently advanced Technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, you know, if extraterrestrial technology, which was amazing and could do cool stuff, could easily be taken as, as, as a miracle. So, for many people, it's seen as very rational. How do you explain things like the pyramids? How do you explain things like uh, like the miracles uh, recounted in the, in the Bible or the Bhagavad Gita or things like that? This is my daughter Laurel, by the way. Hi. <laughs> uh, and there's an avid interest in, in UFOs and space aliens. Uh, last I checked, I think 40% of the country thinks that we've been visited by space aliens before. Uh, and I think 50 to 60% believes that space aliens exist that just haven't been here. So it's not that far-fetched. Uh, it is a concept, uh, one could say. Uh, 
and connecting them to that broader subculture is part of what I'm trying to do as well. To say, well, yeah, they look sort of strange, but if you if you realize that, and then if you look at their their sort of their end of world focus, they came out of Texas in the 1970s. The top seller in Texas in 1970 was was the late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey's book about the end of the world. Talking about the end of the world was also not that unusual in Texas in the 1970s. Talking about UFOs and space aliens is not that unusual in some of the places they were on the West Coast in the 70s and 80s. So in some ways, when they look very strange, they, they were products of their time, and it totally makes sense. Isn't there a book called Chariots of the yeah. Gods? Yeah, Chariots of the Gods. Yeah. 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 Uh, Eric Von Donegan. Yes. Yeah, right. Von Donegan. Uh, yeah, he was the great popularizer of the idea. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the first edition is Chariots of the Gods with a question mark. And the next edition, the question mark is gone. <laughs> so I mean, that shows yeah, the development yeah. of, of the uh, of the milieu, right? Yeah. So, you know, at first, it was this very tentative. Oh, how, how can we explain the ancient Inca? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you know, their cool sort of yeah. giant drawings. Are they? You know, his, his argument was what was landing strips, right? Um, yeah. And then, of course, the second edition, the question mark is gone. He says, now we have evidence. You know, it's yeah. you know, he looks at all the ancient people and says, yeah, it's proof the aliens were here. Uh, is it irrational? I guess to some people, but I mean. It, is it any more irrational than anything else people believe religiously? I don't think so. I'm not saying I believe it, but I'm saying I understand what people do. Were there any of the original people that committed suicide, did any of them survive? They, no. Well, didn't they kind of do it in shifts? They did it in three waves. They, they were very, very careful to do it. Uh, so they did it in three waves, uh, and they the second wave made sure the first wave was, was quite dead, and the third wave made sure the second wave was quite dead. And the third wave is where the potential problem would be. So there were very few people in the, in the third wave, and the third wave was led by an RN. Uh, so I think she was she wanted to make sure that she was doing it right. They uh, they were very intentional about it. So they, they left very careful notes about how they committed suicides, and they were very, very clear that each individual took the pills themselves, took the alcohol themselves, and tied their own bag themselves, so that if there had been a failure, no one could be accused of aiding and abetting. Uh, so they were very, very careful so that each individual did it on their own, uh, and, that, uh, uh, and that there were fail-safes. Uh, however, the people who weren't members, uh, the sort of the, the, the ex-members or sort of quasi-members, who committed suicide later, there was a case there of someone who tried and failed. Uh, there were uh, two gentlemen uh, who um, were ex-members but decided they, they, they wanted back in after the main suicides. They had a, a suicide pact and one of them was successful, one was not. He was, uh, uh, he was sent to a mental hospital after he was eventually released. He also committed suicide. So as far as I know, everyone, anyone who's tried it eventually succeeded. And only one person took more than one attempt, as far as we know. Uh, I'd have to look, I know I have read the autopsies, I think the, the medical examiner probably would have noted had there been an aborted attempt which had to be repeated, but my reading of the autopsies was they were all done properly, for lack of a better term. Did they leave behind lots of records? I mean, I know you yeah. did interviews, it's so fascinating, but did yeah. they leave behind like a library? They left behind a library, uh, which was seized by the state of California and liquidated. Uh, so the money could be sent to use for, to pay for, you know, all the sheriff's department and everything. And, um, yeah, that's one of the saddest things, is that most of their records were lost or destroyed. The digital stuff, thankfully, is out there on their webpage. Uh, they made a lot of videos, which they sent around. Right before the suicides, they went to FedEx, and they, uh, they made packages of, uh, they have a book 
Um, so they had uh, a CDR with uh, with the PDFs of the book. Uh, they had the uh, actually it was the word, it was the word file of the book, uh, Word Perfect, I think. Uh, they had the the web pages with diskettes, actual diskettes for uploading. Uh, they had all their uh, VHS tapes, and they sent these to a whole bunch of ex members. That's why we still have it. Uh, and some of those ex members have very thankfully digitized some of those things, uh, because VHS tapes, as you know, aren't going to last forever. Uh, but a lot of their physical stuff was lost. Some ex-members went in and they were, with permission of the state, allowed to take some of the stuff which was valueless, things like ledgers and notes and things like that, but anything of value, like their library, they had a huge library. Uh, we don't, it was all been lost, we don't even know what books they had. We know what some of them were because they, they have a, a list of selected readings. But we know that they read really, really widely and they had hundreds of books in their collection. We don't know what they were anymore. They didn't leave a will for somebody to take over their buildings and stuff. This is is, is a, the great error they made. They left powers of attorney instead of a will. Uh -huh. Each member signed a durable power of attorney. But they apparently thought that was enough, and it's not. As soon as they were dead, the power of attorney disappeared. You can't have power of attorney for a dead person. And the will takes over, and the probate court didn't care, because the powers of attorney were given to other cultists, as far as they were concerned. So while you would ex-members said, look, we have powers of attorney, they clearly wanted us to be in charge of their stuff. The court said, sorry, you have no you have no say here. There was no will. So that was, they goofed. They really goofed. They didn't have wills. Only powers of attorney. Unless it was on purpose. I don't know. Um, yeah, it could be on purpose. The ex-members I spoke to th thought that it was it was, it was was a goof, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't, there were no attorneys with the group, as far as I know. But you, I, 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 you'd think they would have, I was about to say Google it. Google it doesn't exist. They would have also listed it. You'd think. <laughs> yeah. um, did any of the ex-members try to stop the ones that left already? Did any of them try to stop them? No. No. That's what's so interesting. Uh, I think there's two reasons for that. One is they were uh, they were pretty anti-government. Uh, they thought that uh, the government was run by Luciferian space aliens. So they thought there were two types of space aliens out there: the good ones and the bad ones. And the bad ones they called the Luciferians, and they thought that they were uh, they were involved in a vast conspiracy which was running the whole world basically. So they did not trust the authorities. So none of the ex-members went to the authorities to say, "Hey, there might be a suicide coming up," because they fundamentally didn't trust the authorities. The other thing is, the ex-members, with very very few exceptions, left on really good terms. So they apparently just it didn't feel like they 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 ought to stop their co-religionists for engaging in suicides. When the act members I've talked to have said, no, they, they respected the rights of their of their friends and, and colleagues to do that. It's a really interesting group in that way. You find very few angry ex-members. They actually kick people out, actually. They, they, if they thought that you were only sort of somewhat involved, they said, why don't you just leave? Not you, Laurel, we could say. <laughs> okay, that's fine. It's just, to me, it seems like they were pretty smart people. I'm trying to get this this on my head that how can they get to that point of killing themselves if they were so right, you know? And I know. That's, that's it. And the other question was, uh, was uh, Steve Jobs the prophet? <laughs> <laughs> the um, well, I, I, that I can help with, but I can I can tell you the um, the you know the, 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 they were so smart. Uh, they were all seekers. I think that that's an important part of it. Is every one of them had tried different religions. And different, they had read very broadly. Uh, and I shouldn't say everyone had tried different religions. The vast majority had 
had, had been members of it of, or, or tried other religious options. Other new religions like Scientology, uh, Transcendental Meditation, some of them had joined ashrams or kibbutzes or things like that. So they were all looking. A lot of them had used uh, psychoactive drugs. But they'd all tried different things uh, to try to, to, to find some sort of deeper meaning in life. So it, although they were very smart people, they were also people who were driven to try to find deeper answers. They all also fundamentally were rejecting the world. Every one of them said, not everyone, I, the majority of them would, anyone who talked about their relationship with the broader world said that the, the broader world had rejected them and they had rejected the broader world. That uh, They felt like they weren't at home in this world. That they were, they felt like aliens. They felt alienated. So if you feel alienated from the world, you feel like an alien, what better option than to say you really are an alien? You don't belong here. You belong up there. So for our view, were they just trying to maybe just be different than any, any other religion? Were they just trying to make a point? You know, saying we are different? I, I think they saw they, they saw themselves as different because they saw themselves as the only people who had finally figured out the truth. Uh, they ultimately saw the rest of us as confused and out of it. And uh, they actually, at one point, a few of them said, and there, there was disagreement in the group, but there was this whole debate about what happened to those, those of us who were left behind, you know, who, who didn't join. And there are different ways of reading what Applewhite, their, their leader, said. And there are different things that followers or adherents said in their written statements. Some of them said, if you're left behind, you're done for. I mean, your, your soul will be destroyed. Uh, the aliens are going to come and, and wipe off the planet and restart it. Uh, others said, well, if you're, if you're a decent person and you, you recognize some value of what we're saying, then the space aliens will basically put your soul on ice and you'll be re-downloaded into a new body in some future state of time. Again, they had that reincarnation idea. So, and some of them said, well, there's value in other religions. One of them, there was one, one adherent who wrote some very nice things about Islam, actually, and said that, well, there's uh, that, that Muslims, they didn't really understand Islam, but he said that Muslims seem to be really devoted to their religions. Uh, the, uh, their founder, Applewhite, actually said some very nice things about Christian monastic groups. So on the one hand, they were, they were different and special, but they also saw themselves as part of a trajectory of other groups trying to figure out their place in the world. Other questions? Let's see, we've got a few minutes left. <laughs> was that was that the group? Well, they all had the same gym shoes on, right? The Nikes, yeah. Yeah. They got them on sale. <laughs> okay. Well, was that the Hellbop? Hellbop, yeah. The Hellbop connection is important because uh, they were looking for a marker that the time had come, and there was the claim by some members of the um, uh, of the ufological subculture, the people who were interested in UFO tracking who claimed that they saw something, a companion, following the comet. Uh, there were some callers according to the Art Bell Show, which is a, a sort of a conspiracy-oriented uh, late-night AM radio station, uh, saying that they had, they had seen this. Uh, there was someone who claimed they had photographed it. Well, it turned out the photograph was, was fake. Uh, and, but there was someone else who claimed that they had engaged in, in uh, remote viewing, entered into a trance, and they were able to see that there was a UFO trailing it. Uh, the members of Heaven's Gate never said whether they believed this or not, but they said the, the hoopla over it is indicative that the time has come. They said whether there's a companion or not, we don't know, but all the eyes of the world are on this comet and on us. If you remember the comet, it was really bright. Yeah. It was really visible for most of the world. Almost all the world's major population centers, you could see it. It was really bright. Everyone was looking. There was all this sort of questions about is, is, is there a spaceship following it or not. They said 
Uh, the eyes of the world are on the Khans. The eyes of the world are on us now. Now is the time to do it. Because they were hoping some of us might do the same thing. Because their thought was, if we all also do the same thing, we can also get our souls up to the next level, to the spaceships, and we can be saved too. Otherwise, we're all going to be spaded under when the, the, the aliens recycle the planet, basically, to start a new civilization. So that's the hell connection. Did the leader of the cult develop these ideas? I mean, I understand where like, the ancient aliens idea might come from, where it might have originated, but did they write like a treatise or a book, or how did they that did, yeah. Uh, they had a, a book uh, which was made up basically of uh, transcripts of their talks. Uh, at first, uh, Applewhite and Nettles, the two founders, they, they did all the talking, and then once they had sort of a small group of followers, they retreated. The followers did most of the talking, and it's unclear how many ideas were developed at that point by the followers, uh, and even by the end, if you read the statements written by, by followers, they don't always match what the leaders are saying, so there were there was disagreements over some of the, the details, but basically Applewhite and Nettles, when she was alive, she died in the mid-80s, uh, they probably came up with all the formative ideas, but they were drawing from diverse sources. Von Donneken, we mentioned earlier in the ancient astronauts stuff, uh, there was uh, some of their ideas about sort of Luciferian space aliens you find in other pop culture. Uh, they were influenced by the X-Files. They were influ influenced by Star Trek. They were influenced by Stargate. They were influenced by a lot of pop culture as well. And they thought that, that fiction could have truth in it. They thought that, uh, that the producers of fiction could also be inspired by the truth, telepathically in some way. And you know they, they, you could find the truth in the Star Trek uh, episodes. Uh, so they had a lot of influences. And they did produce a lot of text and a lot of videos. First version or the next generation? <laughs> <laughs> Primarily next gen, uh, because that was on at the time. Uh, but the uh, brother of Lieutenant Uhura, who was well, not the character, the actor, yeah. the, the brother of uh, Michelle Nichols, yeah. uh, was a member of the group. And she had a statement afterwards. She said that uh, while they disagreed with her brother's choices, they respected his rights and, uh, to... Uh, to make his life and death what he wanted. He was, I suppose, the most famous person. How long did it take I mean, to, to go from an idea to truth? It started in the mid-70s. Uh, the founders met in 74 or 75, depending on how you're dating it. Didn't really have any followers until 77 or so. Uh, and, okay, more food time. Uh, and their formative ideas really by the by the late 70s, they, they, had, they had fixed on the idea of, try, of getting off the planet. Uh, the sort of the idea of, of abandoning the body and just, just of being the mind is going to be late 80s, after they had, had time to absorb the idea of, of the death of the co-founder, what they're supposed to do. Uh, decades, in other words. I would have loved your shirt, by the way. Purple was their favorite color. <laughs> <laughs> was there a possibility um, that ultimately religion could be explained by science? Yeah, they, they, they believed that science within limits could explain everything. They, they thought that, uh, that there was a place for faith in terms of things which couldn't be observed with current technology. They said our current technology can't observe the soul, or the, the, what we would call the soul. Uh, so you have to go on faith that we do have something in here, that downloadable or uploadable thing. But they said with the right technology, anything is observable. With the right technology, it's all material. Uh, so science, technology, that's the, that is the way to know things. Uh, but they said, given our limited state right now on our planet, uh, that you have to have faith in some things, which is a, a good, good savvy way around it, actually. Do we have time for one more? 
Sure, one more. One more question? I mean, or three more. Oh, three more. Where does all this brainwashing come in? You said you have, which book has the brainwashing in it? Uh, yeah, we have a chapter on it, the Bloomsbury Companion. Uh, brainwashing is, is a model which is basically like a passive conversion model which says that a person's conversion happens to them, uh, that certain, uh, they have to be in certain states beforehand, and then the standard model of brainwashing is that you're locked up and uh, your existing identity is destructed and a new identity is put into you and then you are rebuilt, basically. Uh, there are very few examples you could find in the literature of new religions where you find anything like this. The basic problem with brainwashing is uh, you don't feel really locked up very often. Uh, in Heaven's Gate, there's no in indication that people were ever locked up against their will. Uh, the founders weren't even there half the time at the beginning. They were traveling around. Uh, members of, of Heaven's Gate, when asked about brainwashing, they were asked a few times. One of them actually said, oh, we brainwash ourselves. Uh, so if brainwashing means reprogramming oneself, yeah. sure. If brainwashing means you lock someone up and you are bombarding them with either uh, the traditional model, you're either using drugs or sensory deprivation or things like that. Where are you going to find it? You find it in prisoners of war scenarios, basically. Uh, but the, I mean, the, the standard technical model of brainwashing is really hard to do. Uh, the CIA tried it, and it wasn't very successful. And if the CIA, with all of its resources, can't brainwash people very well, you're not going to find a couple of you know, hippies from, from Texas, basically, and a bunch of UFO followers mm -hmm. being able to do it. Uh, so it, it, it's an open question whether brainwashing exists at all. But it certainly didn't happen in this group because it, it, they were anti-drug. There were no drugs. They, they didn't do sensory deprivation. They did meditate. I suppose you could think of that. But there was, no one was locked up. So I mean, it, it's hard to think of brainwashing when you can get up and leave. People did. I mean, their defection rate was massive. Well, I just mean in general. Oh, in, in general, general? I'm not convinced you really find it much. It, just, yeah. it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to work. I mean, the big issue with brainwashing is... New religious movements have a massive defection rate. Most new religions lose between 99 and 99.99% of their followers over a 10 to 15 year period. The few that have been That's tracked, it's huge. It's huge. If you walked into a new religious movement's gathering today and wrote down everyone's name and came back 20 years, in a group of 200, you're going to find two or three. You know, and, and I, I did the, the tracking of those very, very high numbers, I think it was 99.7 was what uh, our colleague Eileen Barker, she was tracking people who had never been exposed to new religion. Because the claim was, you know, if a Mooney talks to you, you're sucked in. So she found every person who communicated with the Mooney in London, in whatever year this was, tracked them and found that 99.7 of them, 99.7%, had no connection to the Moonies after however long it was, 10 years. So, but if you're only counting those members who ever say they join, maybe it's more like an 85% defection rate, but still, and if you, if you ask those who stay for 10 years, are they going to stay on their 10? All right, then maybe it's more like a 50%. But uh, Heaven's Gate had 39 members at the end. That tells you how successful they were at brainwashing. Not. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for coming, everyone.